Chapter Twelve of the Young Crusoe or the Shipwrecked Boy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Young Crusoe or the Shipwrecked Boy by Barbara Huffland. Chapter Twelve. They arrive at the Cape of Good Hope. Departure for England. St. Helena, Madeira, Storm in the Bay of Biscay, Charles Useful and Manly, His Timidity, His Choice of a Profession. We must now follow our happy wanderers to the Cape of Good Hope, where they arrived in due time without any accident to the great joy of Charles, who, although he had been too happy to complain, was heartily tired of the confinement of a ship and embraced with extraordinary delight the power of walking about on dry land, listening to the birds which had lately been his sole companions, and gazing on the trees and plants as objects of beauty and wonder. The Table Mountain at the Cape, by offering a striking variety to the flat island on which he had dwelt so long, pleased him exceedingly, and he wished to set out to it immediately. But his father told him that he must not go anywhere until he had procured proper clothes for him, which could not be done on shipboard. Of the truth of this remark, Charles was soon convinced by the curious eyes which were bent upon him on all sides and from which he was eager to fly. He had frequently wished to behold a single human being as the greatest possible treat in his days of solitude and he was now surprised at himself for considering a crowd annoying. Nevertheless, he could not divest his mind of much timidity, and an earnest desire to run into the open country, unseen and alone, to think on the goodness of God in restoring his father to him, and bringing him back into the world. He felt a sense of the blessings of society in his heart, but he wished for the freedom of solitude, in which to indulge his feelings, for having accustomed himself to express his thoughts in words, when he was alone so long, he naturally desired to do it now in the same way, for, except to his father, he felt fearful of speaking. Mr. Crusoe sought by every gentle means to wean him from this extreme bashfulness, which was contracted entirely by his long retirement and as his friends at the Cape showed him all possible attention, and were extremely anxious to see a son who was found under such extraordinary circumstances, he took him a good deal into company, and saw with much pleasure that every day made a little improvement in his feelings and his manners. It was evident that when he was with sensible people, and especially with scientific persons, or those who had travelled much, and related their observations on different people, and the productions of nature, he was very happy. But trifling chit-chat, or boisterous mirth, teased and wearied him exceedingly. Really, Papa, he would say, one had better sit in a hut with a parrot, than listen to such nonsense as some people talk. When I lived by myself, I thought everybody in the world were good and wise, and I used to sit and fancy how ladies and gentlemen would talk on certain subjects. But I don't find that they are at all what I expected. I did not expect sailors to speak of my favorite subjects, 
Therefore I had no disappointment on shipboard, but with a few exceptions I have had many here. And pray, my dear, what were your imaginary conversations? I mean, what were your favorite subjects? The wonders of God in the creation, as to animals, trees, flowers, and even stones, papa, of which I have collected many curious specimens in pebbles, and the goodness of God in the redemption of the world by the death of his son. I did not remember people talking much of religion at Bombay when I was present. It is true, but I concluded that they forbore to do so because I was a child, and that I should have that pleasure when I was a man. But, my dear Charles, you do not call yourself a man? No, Papa. I think in some respects I am more a child than ever. But still, when I was on the island, time moved slowly, and I read much, and thought much, so that I fancied I was growing quite a man. I hope it was not conceit in me. Do you think it was, my dear sir? No, my dear Charles, it was the natural result of an ardent and inquiring mind left without a guide at that period of life when the desire of knowledge is most lively and the expansion of intellect most rapid. You are far from being a man and have, of course, much to learn, but you are a manly boy, and when we arrive in Europe you shall have every advantage of education. In the meantime, you cannot do better than exercise your mind on the subjects you mention, for whether people talk of them or not, they are the most worthy contemplation of anything presented to the human mind. I must not, however, disguise from you the truth, that in the world people in general are so busy with the cares or the pleasures of life that they do not think so much on these subjects as is consistent with their duty or their happiness. I am well aware that everybody here have come out to get their fortunes, Father, and that they think very little of anything else. But I suppose in London society is much superior. In London, my dear, superior society may be best found, but it is always a jewel to be sought, not a commodity to be stumbled on. I wish you, my dear boy, to be very choice in your society, for to a young man it is the very life of his life. But in the meantime you must be affable with all, for it is scarcely possible to converse with any person without learning something from their experience and observation. Within a fortnight after their arrival at the Cape, they procured the means of prosecuting their voyage in a noble ship, with many pleasant passengers so that the latter part of their long-suspended voyage to England made amends, in a great measure, for the hardship and misfortunes of the first portion of it. Charles, being now in a much larger vessel than before, and supplied by the passengers with a variety of books, passed his time more pleasantly, and his past history being unknown to the crew and passengers, he was not subject to those inquiries or jokes which formerly troubled him. He had been very sorry to part with Mr. Parker, for whose kindness he was truly grateful, and whom his father intended to establish in England. But his present society was exceedingly agreeable, and he endeavored to render his own manners as much like theirs as he could, conscious that in his long seclusion he had contracted habits that were a little uncouth, and might to others appear silly and ludicrous. They touched at St. Helena, and of course visited the tomb of Bonaparte, 
and talked much about him. All the passengers seemed to think residing in such a small island a terrible punishment, and a lady observed that it was surprising to her that the ex-emperor had lived so long in such a frightful solitude, saying to Charles, who had hitherto been silent on the subject, Don't you think the poor man must have been very wretched, very much to be pitied, Master Crusoe? I don't think him much to be pitied for living here, ma'am, for it appears to me a very pretty place. Nor can I conceive a man to be very wretched who had so many friends about him as he had. You are too young to understand the matter. You do not know the miseries of solitude. But your father can tell you that legislators agree there is no punishment so bad as a solitary cell, and they never inflict it upon any but hardened criminals. But this is very different to a solitary cell, and even that is far better than a really solitary island, for there the criminal knows that at the end of a certain day, month, or year, he shall be again restored to society, whereas a man cut off by a wide ocean from all the rest of the world has no such cause for comfort. His spirits droop, and no voice cheers him. He is sick and no hand brings him food. His affections are vividly excited toward every human being, the meanest of whom would be to him an invaluable friend. But he dares not believe that he must ever be cheered by the sight of one human face again. He is buried before he dies, and feels as he ought to be dead, yet with his heart so warm, the life in his limbs so strong, he cannot die. And besides, God commands him to live, and gives some little prospect, some glimmering of hope, that incites him still to struggle on, still to endure the hunger that gnaws him, the grief that consumes him. My dear boy, you are absolutely eloquent, cried the lady, as poor Charles, overcome with the recollections thus excited, suddenly stopped. I had no idea that a person at your age could have looked so deeply into a case of this nature especially an imaginary one. It makes one think of Alexander Selkirk, and the poor fellow only a few years ago left by a brutal captain on a desolate shore. You are really quite poetical in your conception of the case. Charles hastened away to conceal his emotions, and avoid hearing praise to which he had no pretension, for he well knew that he had unawares spoken simply from his heart, and not from his imagination and was vexed with himself for so nearly revealing the circumstance he had earnestly desired both his father and Sambo to conceal. He was not sorry when they again sailed to find that the great exile and his banishment were soon forgotten, as every person now began to look forward to Madeira, and to speak of it in terms of unqualified admiration. The captain one day observed, when the subject was spoken of, that he could never see any reason for disputing an assertion once relied on, that this beautiful island was originally discovered by an Englishman named Matchem or Matchem, who, having married an heiress without the consent of her friends, set out with her for the continent, and was driven by contrary winds to this island, which, in the name of its province, Mexico, authorizes the account. It has, observed Mr. Caruso, been considered fabulous by some writers. I really believe for no other reason than because it was connected with a romantic story, 
just as if real life never presented us with circumstances in themselves as singular as any imagination can conceive. They have also asserted that there is no English name of that description, another proof of ignorance, since there are several families of that name now living in the populous towns of Manchester and Sheffield, and the small but pretty and ancient town of Masham in Yorkshire is sufficiently like the word to warrant the English derivation of this unfortunate person. Many comments were added of pity to the poor man, who had been wrecked with his bride on this beautiful island, and conjectures were made as to his power of providing for subsistence. But Charles now made no observation, though he listened with profound interest, and could not forbear, in his own mind, contriving accommodation, in such a case, for a delicate female and as he thought more about his mother and sister, the nearer he approached to them, he sincerely rejoiced that they had escaped the troubles which had befallen himself and his father. The beauties of Madeira, Charles found, had not been overrated, and like others he was delighted to find himself once more on shore, but he did not regret exchanging it for the vessel which was taking him to a more permanent abode. The society of the ladies on board had brought his own mother continually to his mind, and although he did not love his father less, it is yet certain that he did love his mother more than he had done for the last two or three years, and every idea that he formed for the future was closely connected with her, and that sister to whom he looked for a companion and friend. Charles had too much real manliness of mind and conduct to be one of those boys who pique themselves on being above the company of girls, and as he knew Emily had possessed advantages of education superior to his own, he expected to receive information and repay it by protection in his intercourse with her, and he was well aware from all he remembered of her temper and disposition that she would sympathize in his past sufferings and do her best for his present improvement. His pleasant reveries were interrupted by the bad weather, encountered in the Bay of Biscay, at all times affording a rough sea, but now absolutely tempestuous. Great distress prevailed among the passengers, and at one time Mr. Crusoe feared that he and his unfortunate son should be again doomed to the horrors of a second shipwreck. At this time Charles passed from an apparently timid, retiring boy into an active, clever young man, exercising that acute observation which arises from decided natural talents, united to experience, and displaying an equanimity of spirit that astonished, and in many instances, reproved the elder persons around him. He had attained, during his residence in the island, a knowledge of the usual progress of storms, that appeared to those who were ignorant of such a phenomena, a kind of prophecy and as the captain found that every prediction he made was regularly fulfilled, he soon placed extraordinary confidence in him, and kept him continually near him. In consequence of this confidence, the passengers frequently inquired of Charles that which they could not intrude on the captain to learn, and were surprised to find the self-possession as well as information shown by one who held himself in general so humbly but who now seemed equal not only to command himself but others and frequently issued orders that were always obeyed with alacrity 
from those who dared to rely on their propriety. The storm was at length outridden. The waves that had risen mountains high subsided, and exhibited only a gentle curl that promised them a speedy passage to their native land, and every person on board fell into their usual habits, but it was not possible for our young friend to step back into insignificance. Young as he was, he had gained the esteem of the old, and every person was eager to show him the respect they felt for his abilities and fortitude, and the affection awakened by his kind attentions and consolatory manners in the hour of alarm and dangers, and they now crowded around him to inquire how he came by so much knowledge, and how he acquired so much self-command. I have been shipwrecked once, said Charles. So we understand, Mr. Crusoe, but we cannot see how a single shipwreck, when you must have been almost frightened to death, could have given you that acute perception of every change in the atmosphere which the captain says you possess. I have accustomed myself to look earnestly into the skies and trace the congregating of those magnificent storms in which clouds electrify each other. I like to gaze, even whilst I tremble, at the sublime effects produced by tempest, and like the prophet can watch the cloud no bigger than a man's hand cover by degrees the face of heaven with a curtain of thick darkness. You have, of course, determined to pursue a seafaring life said one of the gentlemen. Indeed, sir, I have never thought of such a thing. I am much too young to determine on anything, seeing I have a father who will determine for me. But as your bent is so decided, as it is plain you love the sea, and possess the talent called for in a navigator, I hope your father will not forbid you to indulge your wishes. My wishes do not tend that way, sir. I like the sea very well, though not as well as I used to do but I have no desire to live upon it, or subject myself again to the troubles I have experienced from it. I wish my profession to be a very different one at present, but I shall certainly express no wish to my father on the subject until my education is much farther advanced, and I may be supposed to have a better reasons for choice than I can have now. So saying, Charles skipped away to his father, who was at that time walking on deck and feeding the parrot, which was an universal favorite, and like his master, had recovered his power of mixing in general society. The sailors were just now particularly fond of Paul, because in the height of a storm he had never ceased to cry, Don't despair, my dear boy, and Mr. Crusoe now learned from his son the reason why the poor creature had been taught these words, and how often he had chanced to use them in the most suitable moment and with the happiest effect. When the fond father was told of the above conversation, he rejoiced exceedingly to hear that his son had no predilection for a seaman's life, having like others believed that to be the case, notwithstanding all that had occurred, and he now became solicitous to know to what his desires turned. This he told Charles, adding, that since he had unavoidably lost much time, if he desired to enter on a learned profession, he would engage for him the best masters as soon as they arrived. Then, Papa, said Charles, I will tell you frankly that I do earnestly desire to be brought up to the church, 
considering it the best way I have of showing gratitude to God for the preservation of my life and my understanding in circumstances so extraordinary as those I have experienced. But as I know myself to be not only very young, but in many respects ignorant, I did not like on such a serious subject to excite any ridicule, so if you please, we will say nothing about it for some time to come. You seem to me, Charles, to have a greater dread of ridicule than I should expect from a boy of your good sense in other respects. Perhaps I have. The people on board the ship that rescued me, though they were really good at the bottom, called me the wild man of the woods, you know, and the speaking orangutan, and used to tell me my own mother would not know me, so that I have got a kind of fear that I am like nobody else. My dear boy, replied Mr. Crusoe, I am very sorry you should suffer pain from such an unworthy cause, for even allowing that from long seclusion and peculiar habits you might, when you were first found, appear singular. Depend on it. That would very soon go off, for young people soon contract and soon lose any impression or habit. However, since one of two evils were always likely to arise, either that you should be exalted into a hero in your own eyes, and made for the rest of your youth a conceited coxcomb, I had much rather of the two that you should experience the fear which now affects you. When you mix with boys of your own age, this timidity, so far as it is painful, will subside, and in the meantime comfort yourself with knowing that your father is not ashamed, but very proud of you. End of chapter 12